the danger with singing these hymns is that all I want to talk about now is the hymn, because that one's one of my absolute favorites and a perfect fit for this part of Romans. Uh, while you're getting situated and finding your way to uh, the end of Romans chapter 3, don't worry, we're in chapter 4, but I want to start from the very end of chapter 3 while we're reading. While you're finding your way there, let me tell you a little bit kind of about uh, where we're at in terms of scheduling sort of things over the next couple weeks, more logistics, I guess. Um, next week, things are going to be a little bit different. We'll still be here. Well, you'll still be here, but uh, a large number of us won't because we're taking our annual leadership retreat with our leadership team um, next weekend, and so um, a couple of the people have volunteered to jump into getting things set up and everything else for us. Really appreciate that. Uh, we're kind of making a special trip because this is Eva's last hurrah on our leadership team after years of service, so when she comes back, she's transitioning into a consulting advisory uh, granny role for us. Where is she? I was going to tease her about that, but... Um, uh, so we're going to be in London next week for that. Don't worry, you're not paying for that. Um, uh, that's not that's uh, not funded by your church money or tax dollars, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, and I, I would just like to take the moment both to to remind you of how grateful I am for the work that our leadership team does behind the scenes for the most part that you don't see. You're sitting here in these chairs, and honestly, it doesn't occur to me very often to ask how these chairs get here until I know we're not going to be here, and I have to go ask Jared, how do the chairs get here? Uh, and so I'm so grateful for the work they do, not only on that sort of logistics, but for the planning, for the oversight of our care team and those sort of things. And some of you might be sitting there going, gee, I want to go to London with Nathan at the leadership team. What is, what is that? How do I get to do that? Why, why is it that his friends get to go with him to London and all those things? You know why? Because ministry is how I make friends. So if you want to be my friends, which you are, you want to be friends that go with me to places to, to sit and think and work carefully on what we're going to do for another year in ministry. Man, roll up your sleeves, get busy, talk to us, say, how do we get deeply involved in the life of this church? And I'm going to say, welcome to the leadership team. Of course I'm not. I'm going to say, hey, there's work here to do, and there's work here to do, and there's work here to do, and you grow in those things, and we grow, and our hearts grow together around the priorities that God has given us for life in the church. We're going to become knit together as, as good friends and brothers and sisters in, in the work of ministry, and you're going to find your gifts used and made to glorify Christ. Where that ends up, I don't know. Maybe it ends up on the leadership team. Maybe it ends up nobody ever knowing who you are. I can't tell you that because I'm not the one who plans the way the life of the church works. Christ is. But I guarantee you, he will be glorified and you will make deep relationships with people who build their lives around the church. That's how that works. So, you want to come to London? Get busy in the life of the church. No, those don't directly correlate. Um, they might, they might, they might not. Um, normally we go to Asheville or something, but after what? How many years has it been, Eva? Six, seven years of you doing this? Uh, and bearing the brunt in a lot of ways of the, the shepherding for the women in this group on, to some extent, on her own with the consultation of, of Rachel O'Dell and some other people, it seemed like it was time for a celebration. And, you know, I love London, so. All right, turn to Romans chapter 3. Is there something else I was supposed to say, Andrew? Did I miss... Did I miss something? Hmm? Okay. Oh, I, there was one other thing I was going to say. I won't be here next week, so uh, I have invited a, a friend from another church out of town to come speak, and so I think you'll be really excited about that. You get to uh, see somebody you don't usually get to see, uh, so you'll, you can look forward in anticipation to something that's not from Romans. I heard a rumor about a minor prophet, but don't know. So turn to Romans chapter 3. Uh, and we're going to be looking this morning at chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. That's not an excuse to sleep for the first couple verses. I just want to orient you and encourage you that you're not going to be like, oh, we have to do more in chapter 3. No, uh, I, I just want to go back because at the end of chapter 3, Paul dishes out these rapid-fire implications of the, the statement that he has made in chapter 3, verses, let's see here, I think it's about 21 or so. Oh, no, that's chapter 2. Chapter 3, yeah, from about verse 21 through 26, 
he makes this magnificent, and in many ways, the heart of the letter, the, the logical heart of the letter, he makes this magnificent statement, this throwdown about the nature of justification uh, in Christ. And then, in verses 27 through the end of chapter 3, he makes these rapid-fire uh, implication statements. He just draws these implications out. And when we covered them last week, honestly, I felt like I just was like, ah, because you're going, Paul, it's too much. Slow down. Well, the good news is chapter 4, in some sense, is him slowing down and dealing with these implications. So that I want to read from 27 through verse 12 uh, of chapter 4 so that you can see both kind of the provoking implication statements and then understand how we began to do some answering and exploration of these implications. So, verse 27 of chapter 3, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Now I'm reading from the NASB and I was tell you I'm reading from ESV. I can switch here in a second. Uh, that's not very nice to you. Let me switch to the ESV so you're not like, what is he doing? Here we go. So picking up in verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That is, in one sentence, the summary of chapter 3. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, next implication set of questions. Where is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the, uncir or the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. I, I suspect that if you were sitting there listening to this read, you would be squirming either in anticipation or, or discomfort with those those statements. Those are big statements. I mean, these are, these are massive topics. Do we overthrow the law? And Paul says, no. And you're like, can you explain a little bit about, because it, it sure sounded like you might have just done that. Could you explain a little bit more? And he's like, no, don't worry about it yet. Uh, and, and that's why I wanted to read these things for you again, because he's just dropping these huge things. God is God of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Next. And you're like, whoa, Paul, that's, that's some serious stuff you're sledding through here. Don't worry. We're going to get to that. He doesn't tell you, though, that I have to tell you, don't worry, right? He doesn't tell you. He's just like, buckle up. Now, chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful this week for your word. I'm grateful yesterday morning as I was able to, to finally think about this passage slowly and carefully for the refreshing, clarifying, life-giving truth that you have guaranteed us in this letter. Lord, I pray that Christ would be seen today in your word. May our hearts be emboldened and encouraged and eager to speak of his work, of your work, for your people. We pray it by the power of your spirit, and to glorify the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Paul has 
launched into these, as I said, challenging topics in chapter 3. And now, to help us reckon with what he has launched into, he is going to invite in a friend for a little bit of Q&A. Um, now, I don't know about you, but when we go to conferences uh, and there's a Q&A session, I usually kind of dread it. I go take an extra couple shots of espresso um, because sometimes Q&As are unclarifying rather than clarifying. However, Paul is a master at this, as we'll see. And so this is one of those Q&As that you know, your friends tell you later, oh, man, you missed a good Q&A. And you're like, there is no such thing. It's like, did somebody good come from Nazareth? Right? There's no such thing as a good Q&A. And then you have to go back and listen to it later and be like, oh, wow, this is great. Well, the good news for us is they wrote it down, uh, which means not only do you not have to listen to two guys sitting on a chair, you know, stage on their comfy chairs talking back and forth. I mean, they even look like comfy chairs, right? At least it's better when they're on the little stools and they look like they might fall off. You get some interest out of that, right? But this time they wrote it down so you can move through it quickly. Well, Paul takes the time to invite in, to phone in some friends, to work through these things with us slowly because there are, there are implications of chapter 3 that I would suggest to you are a little bit easy to move past without noticing how dramatic they are. You're like, well, that, Nathan, you just said that if you were sitting there listening to this in Rome, you know, in church when the letter was read, that you would be on the edge of your seat. Yes, you probably would be, but they live in a, di a different context than we do, right? We, we don't live in a church where the tension between false Jewish teaching, true Jewish teaching, and Christian teaching are at constant odds with one another, okay? When you go to, I almost said Red Robin, but there aren't Red Robins around here. When you go to wherever it is you go for lunch, to Chipotle or whatever for lunch, what usually comes up isn't, oh my goodness, did you hear what Rabbi so-and-so just said, right? And so we don't always notice the tension that is present here. In fact, I would suggest to you that it's unusual to find a lot of attention paid to Romans chapter 4. Right? If, you, if you see or read books on Romans or sermon series on Romans, where are the heavy-hitting sermons? Where are the ones where they spend like a really long time and you, you get a book deal from? Five? Well, three, obviously, but chapter five you get a lot of. Chapter six, I mean, John Owen literally wrote like 7,000 books on chapter six, right? So you can go on and on and on and on. You can look at chapter eight, and people write good books about chapter eight and squishy books about chapter eight and all sorts of other things about that, right? Uh, you can even find lots of things about chapter 12, right? But... But who spends a lot of time thinking about chapter 4? Well, I didn't. I certainly didn't until I began to memorize Romans. And I memorized Romans in a time in my life, as I told you, where I was a very new Christian and driving Chris nuts since he just walked in. In fact, at one point, he said to me as I was doing this, I, I was sitting in his, in his kitchen, I think, very depressed because I was reading Ellen. And he said, finally, after an hour of me going, oh, I'm so depressed, he said, Nathan, what are you reading? And I was like, John Owen. He's like, stop. Read something else. How about you read your Bible, right? Which was great advice. I, and I told you before, I went and read the Psalms, began to memorize some hymns. Uh, but I also was working my way through chapter 4. And it has such a, a precious place in my heart because of its exegetical focus, as you'll see, and because Paul forces us to draw our attention to these radical implications in a way that I wouldn't have done otherwise. But I'll tell you, walking through my neighborhood, I used to live in Texas, walking through my neighborhood on these endless walks, I'm sure my neighbors thought I was schizophrenic or something. Uh, maybe I am, I don't know. Uh, walking through the neighborhood and wrestling with soul-crushing doubt about the nature of, of salvation, the nature of sanctification. And I, I just have to believe that some of you have been there and some of you will be there where you are so aware of the sinfulness in your heart you have become newly aware, as I was, of the hopelessness of your situation apart from Christ. And, and, and therefore, so aware of this dramatic dichotomy we talked about last week. How is God the just and the justifier? Uh, how can we reckon our way, if, and now I'm using Paul's words and reckon is a good word from chapter 4, but how can we our, reckon our way through this extraordinary reality we find ourselves living in. And I was racked by doubt over, have I, have I understood this correctly? Should I just give up in despair? And, and it's this chapter that taught me more than anything else to think God's thoughts after him 
in terms of our salvation. And we're only going to get to think of two of those implications this morning because it's a long chapter and we can only do 12 verses. Paul wants us this morning to wrestle with two implications of chapter 3. That our justification is not works-driven and not ritual-driven. Use ritual carefully. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he, he wants to dwell on these implications of works and ritual. Now, later we'll get to some of the other ones we let, read uh, in, in chapter 3, particularly what is the, the relationship of justification to the law. But he begins here with human works, works aimed at our righteousness, and human rituals. And to do that, to focus our attention on that, he draws in, as I said, he phones a friend. And so if you were to title this, I'm terrible at titles, but if you were to title this, I would say it's Q&A with Father Abraham. Q&A with Father Abraham. And quite simply, two main points that we think about this morning, the nature of works and the nature of human ritual. Notice the question that he asks here in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather. Now, the dangerous thing with me being short on sleep and having coffee is that you get to hear a lot about my imagination as I think about these texts. I, I just have this in, uh, thought in my mind that Paul, pre-conversion Paul, Saul in his Jewish name, in his yeshiva growing up as a rabbi, that's, you know, that's where they study, that Paul was somewhat of a fan of like, WWE wrestling, but not in terms of like actual wrestling, but in terms of like intellectual wrestling, right? I mean, I, I have a feeling that he was one of these guys who just loved a good debate. He loved to get into the ring with his opponents and point out implications of the scripture or of their bad arguments that they just didn't see coming, you know, so that with his little prayer shawl and everything else, however you would do that, he's just like, you know, I, I am the champion wrestler. And I think he gets to, to go there a little bit this morning because these are these simple but devastating arguments with himself, right? He's, he's doing the thing that he likes to do. He's working his way through bringing up an argument point and having a little conversation with himself, which I like to do too, so maybe that's why I identify with him so much. Uh, and maybe I am schizophrenic, I don't know. Uh, but he's going through his argument here with himself. Uh, with, and, and I don't think it's just arguments from midair. I, I suspect that these are arguments now as an apostle that he has encountered regularly through his teaching ministry. He walks into a synagogue. Uh, he walks into a church where there are false teachers or, or just confused Christians. And these points come up. And particularly this point about Abraham comes up. It's almost like he's got to the point now where he can say chapter 3 while he's preaching, take a deep breath and say, yes, I know about Abraham. Right? Uh, he's, he's already ready for this debate point to come up. So he asks the question. He gets ahead of it. He asks the question and says, what, what then, what, if these things in chapter 3 are true, if justification is all of God, I told you when we were in chapter 3, I wanted you to notice particularly how much the primacy, the prime motion, the prime mover in all of chapter 3 is God, but God. It's God who initiates, God who provides, and God who sustains our salvation. If these things are true, well, what shall we say Abraham found? Okay? It's, it's, an, it's an interesting question. It's like, imagine that Abraham is sitting in his tent, in his cushy armchair. I don't know why I'm on cushy armchairs this morning, but it sounds really nice. Uh, so Abraham is reflecting in his old age, carefully on his spiritual state, on, on the work and the, the relationship that he has with his God. And he's saying, imagine that you could get into Abraham's frame of mind as he's thinking about his relationship with God. And what, what would he evaluate about that? What has he found to be true about that? Why Abraham? Why are we want to get into to Abraham's frame of mind? As opposed to, I don't know, Moses or Elijah or somebody else famous or some modern rabbi. Well, I, I think because Abraham's the guy, right? He, he's, he's the perfect 
origination story to go to in this. And I was thinking about this this week. You know, if you ever think of like somebody's trying to, to, to set up, you know, in a movie when they have like two seconds to set up a, a, a character reference and you're trying to figure out who this person is and what they think. So they're trying to set up, you know, this guy is a really patriotic guy. So you, you zoop into his office and he's sitting there in his office and the painting behind him is what? Washington crossing the Delaware or Washington resigning his commission or something. And you're like, Ah, okay, he gets it, right? This is an American's American. He's sitting in front of a portrait of Washington, of course, right? Well, if you were to go into somebody who's really a, a Jewish man of Jewish men, he's got Abraham on Mount Moriah in the portrait behind him, you know, about to sacrifice Isaac. Or Abraham, you know, crossing the Delaware, no, crossing the river from Ur into, you know, the Jordan, I suppose, or crossing the, the Jordan into, uh, into the land, right? And, and so, of course, you want to talk about Abraham, and not only do you want to talk about Abraham because he's the guy, but actually also Abraham is where we begin to talk about righteousness in the Bible. Where do we begin to think about these important terms? Well, Genesis 15, and when we were in Genesis, I, I reminded you, this is, this is the point at which the long, tragic story of human history, which is already quite long by the time we get to, to um, Abraham in Genesis 12, begins to focus on these twin issues of blessing and righteousness. And we'll see Paul unfold that for us. But notice who this is aimed at. This is aimed at a conversation directly with his Jewish friends, with his Jewish conversation partners. Because for a moment still, us, the rest of us Gentiles, have to kind of sit watching this debate because he's saying it's our forefather. Yeah, right? Okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the most important objections, the most important conversation first with my fellow Jews. Our forefather, how do I know he's talking about Jews? According to the flesh. Right? This is a conversation focused on those people who, when they bust out their family tree, say, Abraham. Every Jew can trace his family tree back to Abraham. It's a good starting point. They can't all go back to Moses. They can't all go back, well, they can go back to Adam, but they have to go back to Abraham. So what's the question? As we get into Abraham's frame of mind sitting in his easy chair in his caravan, and he's reflecting on the nature of God's work. And here's the hypothetical question that Paul rolls out for us. I love the languages, and I won't bore you with them too much here, but this is a hypothetical that Paul sets up as if it's true, right? Just go with us in our imagination for a minute and imagine that this is a true statement. If Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about. That's a pretty simple, logical extension, right? Let's substitute something else in there, right? Um, we, you know, if you've ever been to my house, that Naomi is uh, not the world's favorite eater of chicken, um, by which I mean she abhors it, unless it comes from Panda Express, right? So imagine for a moment, I look down, and all the chicken is gone. And it's not in the trash, it's in her, right? She has reason to boast. And she does. I beat you, right? Usually I've had seconds already and she hasn't noticed. But, you know, I beat you. I have something to boast about. This is a simple statement. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Good job, Abraham, right? You did it. You alone are righteous, right? That's already giving lie to where we're going, but... And notice that he's backed up here. This is, a, this is an argument about primacy. We're not even talking right now about the intricacies of the Mosaic law. We'll get to that in a minute. But Abraham's a great test case because Moses ain't been born yet, right? Well, Abraham is a, is a law of primacy character. This is something that we're going back to just the core, the basics. Before God, what does one have to do to be righteous? We haven't even introduced the complexity of the law yet. If Abraham, by his own effort and his own eating of Chick-fil-A and his own everything else in life, has met the standard, he has something to boast about. I just would like to draw your attention briefly to Galatians 3.17. You can write this in your margin uh, if you would like to or wherever it is that you're taking your notes or text it to one another or however that works these days. In Galatians 3.17, Paul reminds them, what I'm saying is this, the law came 430 years later, right? Paul's this, or Abraham is this great test case because 
as we'll get to again in chapter 5, he's before the law. And yet, we're still dealing with righteousness and blessings. So before we even get to the complexities of the law, that comes 430 years later, we have kind of an isolated test case to see how does this justification thing work. You know what else is great about it? We're assuming this is true, but so do all of Paul's Jewish friends, right? Everybody else sitting there in conversation with him is like, oh, this is is why I said he's like a WWE wrestler, that he's lulling them, right? They're getting to the point, they're like, oh, we agree with him. We thought this was going to be bad, but okay, we can deal with this. If, if, Paul, uh, if Paul thinks that Abraham has cause to boast, yeah, we think that too. Okay, maybe this is going, right? He's lulling them to sleep before he gets his, his little hood on and goes and smacks them down with the argument, right? Say, so here's a perspective, a simple, a simple logical statement. Abraham worked, he's righteous. Boasting time. Well, it doesn't last long because he brings in another perspective, but not before God, but not before God. This is a a reset point. He's giving you a hypothetical that could be true, and now he's saying, but there's another perspective we need to consider, and it's not your perspective, it's not your favorite rabbi's perspective, it's not your favorite YouTube preacher's perspective. We need to consider God's perspective. Does this hold up in God's evaluation? Now, here's what I love about Paul's thinking. This is so instructive for us. It's so helpful. When you're sitting around having the conversation that you're having about whatever topic it is, I know it's probably not rabbis, but whatever theological topic it is that has got everybody on Twitter and you inflamed and interested or excited, and you're having these conversations, notice what Paul does. I think this is so helpful for us. First reminder, our perspective isn't the important perspective. God's perspective is the one that needs to reset it. How do we reset with God's perspective? This question. What does the scripture say? Paul's such a smart guy. And he's not only a smart guy, but he's an authoritative smart guy. He's writing a whole letter of authoritative truth, and yet he never gets far away from this question What does the scripture say? Have you noticed this all the way through beginning? In chapter 1, verse 1, even in his qualifications, he begins to say, this is the scripture that was promised, or this is the gospel that was promised in the Old Testament. This was the the scripture that was promised and validated through the teaching of the prophets and the teaching of the law, right? And he, he just drives us continually back to this careful question, what does the scripture say? Now, again, you're stuck with my imagination. Sorry, in advance. This made me think about Shark Week. I wish Chris wasn't here because now I might lose my job. But anyway, talking about Shark Week, okay? Do you watch watch documentaries? I love to watch documentaries, but they drive me nuts sometimes. Why do they, and we're back to the easy chair theme again, right? Okay, I don't know what it is about easy chairs this week, but here we are, okay? What do you watch Shark Week for? Sharks! What do you not watch Shark Week for? The guy in the easy chair saying, Sharks are actually cuddly. They don't dislike people. They're really misunderstood. If you could only listen to them, you know, you know, you want, in fact, you want to throw that guy in the ocean and watch the sharks, right? That's a very dark thing to say. But you, you watch Shark Week for the sharks, okay? I hope that sticks with you in its weirdness because I, I want you to notice this point. We don't need the guy in the documentary in the easy chair. Your conversations about theological topics must not be dominated by so-and-so in his easy chair said about the scriptures. I'm not saying don't listen to good preaching, otherwise you should just walk out right now. But the goal of good preaching is to take the scriptures, to give the sense, and explain it so that you understand what's there. That's a valuable thing. But what you want, what your heart ought to want, and what your debates ought to be centered around is the shark, right? You want to be back to the scriptures. Get in the cage, buy the mask, Hop in the water and get face-to-face with God and the scriptures. This is what Paul drives us back to do. And, and, and he just drives through chapter 4 saying, consider the text of the scripture. And some of these things that he draws our attention to as he does it seem so incredibly basic. These are applying careful logic. When we had our hermeneutics night, I told you that logic is an essential part of exegesis. Logic is an essential part of biblical study, but logic constrained by the Bible's logic. 
right? The Bible teaches you how to think about inference and application and implication and all of these things. And I love when both Jesus and Paul do this. They draw our attention to things as basic in this chapter as the timing of when something happened. Was this before or after? Right? You don't need to have a degree in philosophy from an Ivy League university to ask a question like I ask as a parent all the time. Wait, 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 wait. Did that happen before you slapped her or after you slapped her, right? These are, these are our basic questions of careful, attentive observation to what God has said, right? This is precious because it's something that you, by the power of the Spirit, can do. Paul is modeling for you, but not basic because the truth that he draws our attention to is extraordinary. Notice a couple things about Paul's attention to Scripture. Paul's going to provide a text for us to consider. It's from Genesis 15, Genesis 15, verse 6. And I would simply draw your attention to two things about it. First of all, Paul deals with the text contextually. Say, Nathan, he gave us one verse. That seems like proof texting. Right, you know what proof texting is? Proof texting is when you go grab a Twitter tweet about something and you now are an expert, right? I work in aviation, so I see this all the time. Something happens in aviation and somebody sees one tweet about it and now they are an expert on aviation and you're like, I don't even think you understood that tweet, right? You go and post it on your thing and you're like, notice my insight, right? Proof texting is when you grab a truth or something that you think is a truth and you rip it from its shared body of knowledge that establishes everything you need to know about it. Right? There's an old joke about uh, a text without a context is an excuse for a proof text or something like that. And I, 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 I like the quote, but it always messes me up because I can't ever get the order of those things quite right. So don't do proof texting. Right? That's the moral of the story, and that's easier to say. So Nathan, he gave us just one verse. But if you go back and look through Genesis, which we don't have time to do this morning, you go back and look through these, this whole long narrative about Abraham, he picks the verse that's at the heart of it. Now, he can do this because he knows that his opponents also agree that this is a central verse about this topic. But it is, it is fascinating, and I, I, I almost thought, you know, what we need to do is we just need to go back into Genesis, but you can go listen to that because we spent some time there. If you were to, to say, read the entire, if you were to give this as a homework assignment, read everything about Abraham in Genesis, and then find for me one verse that captures the entirety of what God's work with Abraham in Genesis is, this is that verse. And as we're going to see, it perfectly blends together the two great concerns of Abraham in Genesis, blessing and righteousness. We'll unfold that as we go. In other words, I think it would be fair to say that Paul's opponents would agree this is the right verse to be talking about. This verse brings with it the entire shape of Abraham's life and deeds. Paul's interested in the scripture contextually, and Paul's also interested in the scriptures exegetically. He wants to know the whole story, and then he wants to ask careful questions about that whole story. Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, 6, and now here in verse 3, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Hello? Okay. Now, I could explain that to you, but Paul's going to explain through this whole chapter each detail of what he wants us to draw attention to. So we're going to just leave... Verse 3, hanging there in our imagination, and we're going to see what Paul wants us to notice about it. First question he brings to our mind. To the one who works, verse 4, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. This is the first of two competing propositions that Paul wants us to puzzle our way through, and this is the nature of Christian meditation. Ooh, that's a scary word, meditation, right? That usually comes up, you know, with some incense sticks. I hate incense, it sounds so, so weird. But anyway, incense sticks and a yoga mat 
you know, and you're sitting there going and emptying your mind, right? This is not what the scripture means by meditation. This is what meditation looks like. So if you've ever wondered, what does it look like to meditate on the scriptures? It means to do exactly what Paul is modeling for us here. Careful questions about what is actually being said here. And notice, notice the, 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 the imagination that Paul is drawing on here, and he's imagining a scenario. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Every one of you who's ever worked understands this, right? If I went in, I've been working way more than I ever worked because I don't work five days a week ever, and I've been working five days a week with just weekends off for the last month, and I'm very sympathetic to the rest of you because that's not my normal life. I'm like, what is happening to me? Friday, I was on my way home, and my sim partner in training, we were finished with that part of it, and we're sitting in the debriefing room, and he gave me this little gift bag, which was very nice of him. I've never actually got a gift bag at work before. So I thought, you know, this was very nice of him, and he was just trying to say thank you for showing up prepared or whatever. And he's a manager, so he kind of has to do that, but that's very nice of him anyway, right? And, but imagine how differently this would have hit. It was a t-shirt. Not the right size, but anyway, very nice. Um, it'll shrink. Tabby's already stolen it, so it doesn't matter. Um, imagine how differently that would have hit. I was kind of like, aw, that's nice of him. If he'd said, here's a gift. And then followed up with, and we cut off your direct deposit. Uh, excuse me? I worked. Uh, the gift is nice. Those two things don't go together. I would also like my paycheck, please, right? Those are, those are two different things. This is not hard to imagine. I probably would not be here today if that had been what happened, because I probably would be in jail. So, you know, hey, um, how about you pay us? And then that would not have gone well, right? Um, wouldn't have been bad, because look at me. I couldn't have caused any real damage. So, <laughs> Wages have an equal sign next to them. Right? Math is math. It always works. Wages are what you get. Notice the contrast in verse 5. Notice the contrast. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Wow, what a massive series of things to say in about four words, Paul. I mean, this is, this is we're probably not even going to get past this one this morning because this is so much in one little thing. First of all, notice what he's saying about Abraham. He just put Abraham in a category. What category did he just put Abraham in? The ungodly. Them's fighting words. Okay? He's, just, he's just soothed his Jewish opponents by saying, let's talk about granddad. We love granddad. Let's talk about granddad. Let's talk about how great it is to be granddad's grandsons. Right? And they're like, oh, good, because we can all agree Abraham is awesome. And he says, hey, do you know what category of people Abraham exists in in the world? And they're like, oh, pick me, pick me. And he's like, you're right, ungodly. And they're like, oh, don't pick me, right? That's not the category that we were going to put Abraham in. He just said that that guy who gets the best reputation sheet, really in a lot of ways in the Old Testament, and not all of them, I mean, there's some pretty dodgy things, but compared to his children, he gets a pretty good reputation sheet, right? The guy that left his pagan life in a land that didn't know God to go on God's call, and as far as we can tell, without any arguing about it, straight to a land he didn't know because he expected a land that would be given to him that was better than all that. I mean, the guy who is the headliner in, in Hebrews 11, oh yeah, by the way, the category he exists in is ungodly. That's shocking. That's shocking because it means that none of that stuff that gets into Abraham's bio sheet did anything to balance the scales of justice. Notice something else here. What is it that is involved in this justification? His faith is counted as righteousness. Right? But there's two important implications of what Paul is saying here. Faith 
is not righteousness. Do you notice that? Faith is not righteousness. Paul could say that differently. First of all, it wouldn't require putting Abraham in the category of the ungodly, but even if it did, he could say his faith was his righteousness. What God needed to balance the scales, in other words, in this line of thinking, was simply for him to have faith, which sounds quite a lot like what you hear in our world today. Oh, this spiritual faith thing, you know, is, is that's really what God needs. He, he wants to see that attitude, that mystical squishiness that, you know, there's this great British term, squidgy, uh, that I prefer there. You know, that's the squidginess that would just move you towards being a spiritual sort of person and therefore put you in the right camp. No. What happens with faith? It is counted as something. It is, and my favorite word in this chapter, reckoned. That is a great word, right? First of all, it makes you sound very authentically Southern. You say, ah, reckon. Uh, okay. But it is a word that has everything to do with your life. Luther would say there is at play here an alien righteousness. Okay? We are not referring to extraterrestrial righteousness. There are no green people involved here. A righteousness that is not yours. Abraham's faith was not his righteousness. Abraham is justified by means of his faith, not by his faith. Do you understand the difference? It is his faith is therefore involved in a legal determination. That's another way of saying reckoning. It's another way of getting us back to the first part of this verse of justification. Justification is a declaration by a judge of something forensically, legally to be found true. There is another righteousness at play here. Whose righteousness is it? Well, it's Christ's righteousness. That's what the point of chapter 3 was. In him, we are justified, right? Turn over to 2 Corinthians 5.21. You know this verse, but you have to see it here. Wow, first page. You know, you know these words, but I, I pray they are engraved in your heart. He made him, that is God, to borrow Paul's language in Romans chapter 3, God, the one who is just and the justifier. Why is he just and the justifier? He cannot look on injustice with anything less than the full punishment it deserves. That's how he declares his glory in Exodus. He is just. And he is the justifier because he is the one who has presented Christ, displayed Christ as a propitiation. I told you that means an absolute satisfaction of his justice. I told you last week, but it's worth saying again, no human justice brings satisfaction. I was reading, and I'm so far off my notes now, it's not even funny, but I was reading a story this week about uh, Alabama, I think. They executed somebody with some new novel execution technique. I don't know how novel you could be in finding ways to end other people's lives, but evidently it's new and novel, right? And the guy died. And I read this statement from the victim's children. And it was, it was tragic, honestly. They said basically two things. The first was, all the drama about the method of execution has drawn attention away from the justice that we all must seek. That's true, okay? The second thing it said, they said something to the effect of, I hope that this will somewhat give justice for our mother. It's just, but it doesn't satisfy. Human justice can't satisfy. It must happen, but it can't satisfy. Propitiation means God's justice is satisfied. I just can't put that into words. Imagine what it would be to have the offense against you not only balanced, but propitiated, satisfied. This is how great our, our God is. This is how great Christ's sacrifice for us is. Now, back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him, God made Christ, God the Father made his Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. This is, back to Romans 3, again, the redemption that is in his blood. The substitutionary, I told you how redemption is always bound up with substitution. The substitution in his death, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God where in him. There is an alien righteousness. God looks at Abraham 
and says, on the basis of my son's death, remember chapter 3 tells us this, two purposes, at the present time that he might be just and justifier, but also for those in the past, right? He looks at Abraham and says, you are in the category of ungodly, but your faith and my blessing for you, my work for you, means that you are in my son, and his righteousness is your righteousness. Notice, in chapter 4, we have to look at this. I know it's what we're going to do next week, but we have to look at this because it's so precious. Notice the nature of Paul, of, of Abraham, rather's faith. Look down in verse, uh, let's see here, 18. In hope, against hope, uh, now I'm back in the NASB, so I apologize about that, but in hope, against hope, he believed. I love that expression. That is, yes, I understand it's talking about the fact that he's too old to have a child, right? But this is the nature of the faith that we have in God. We believe in hope, but we confess that it is against hope. That means there is nothing in our life, our pleading, our work, our anything that would move us into God's favor. It is not only without hope, it's against hope. We are at war with our judge. In hope, against hope, he believed. Verse 18. Now, I know that's directly referencing his provision of Isaac, but look down here in verse 20. Actually, let's start in 19 because we have to get the whole thing. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now. Okay? Again, I know we're talking about him having Isaac, but notice he is not dreaming. Right? There is no, he is not living in a mystical land that is disconnected from reality. He is anchored in reality. He is contemplating this fact in his particular circumstance. I cannot have a child. Right? That, he's, he is aware of reality. He is also aware, this chapter is telling us, because this is the reference Paul is making, he is also aware of the improbability and impossibility of God doing what he has promised to make him a blessing for all the nations, right? He is aware of the reality, and yet, in contemplating that, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. What is the nature of faith here in verse 21? being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. I've told you all the way through here, notice that this is God's work. God's grace initiated out of God's own will. God is the one who saves. And Abraham is the first to demonstrate this faith because he shows us against the impossibility not only of his physical condition, but his in-Adam human condition, that God's promises for salvation and blessing, guaranteed and originated by God, are sure to come about. So, it is not a gift. I mean, it's not a do, but a gift. A gift originated by God and received by God-given faith by one who is in the category of the ungodly, and it is his faith that's counted as righteousness. Now, Paul backs that up with a second scriptural quotation, and this ties in the other, the other key word that I told you is here in this passage. There's righteousness and blessing. David, verse 6, also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Notice this. Blessed are those, now here's the category, whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Okay, in case you were wondering, did Abraham really exist in the category of the ungodly? Yes, the nature of this blessing is what? His lawless deeds are forgiven and his sins are covered. This doubles down on the point that it's not Abraham's faith that equals Abraham's righteousness. Because God, by his initiation, is doing what? Covering his sin. Not applying Abraham's faith to it. How is he covering it? With the propitiation of the death of the perfect lamb. His sin is covered. It's forgotten. It's legally forgotten, and it's righteously covered. And that category of a person who has moved from ungodly to sins forgiven 
has a beautiful biblical word attached to it. What does it look like to have moved from category ungodly to the new category? The word that replaces that is this beautiful biblical word, blessed. I love the word blessed. Okay? I, I, I don't think we have a great English word for it because blessed kind of sounds King James-ish. And you're like, I don't say that. In fact, most of the time people say, have a blessed day. You know, nobody goes around saying blessed, have a blessed day, right? It just kind of doesn't hit in the world. It, it's a word of deep happiness and peace and goodness. It's God's character applied to you. It's the man in Psalm 1 who lives in the radiance of another world's thinking. Notice the connection with Abraham. The promise, beginning in Genesis 12, to Abraham that is in you, all the peoples will be blessed. That's not sprinkled and having a good luck charm applied. It's in you, God is providing that people who in Adam exist in the category ungodly, unblessed, cursed, will once again have a future hope of blessedness and a current experience of it. Blessed, verse 8, is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There is our last word brought in again. Count, reckon, legally evaluate. What does it look like to be blessed? What does it look like to receive God's graciousness? The Lord, who is just, will justly not count your sin against you. So, we have to stop there. We only got through point one of point two. We'll talk about ritual later. What Paul says to Abraham, what did, you, what did you experience? What did you gain? What was the result of your reflection on your life lived before God? And Abraham's word would be a blessed gift. A blessed gift. God initiated his promise and God carried it through and against hope with the grace that he gave, I lived in hope. That's the nature of faith from the perspective of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Christ is great. Our redemption in him is staggering. Lord, may we live this week with those truths permeating our mind as we consider and meditate on the truth of your word. To the glory of your Son, we pray by the power of your Spirit. Amen.